If you would like to earn CPE credit for listening to the show, visit earmarkcpe.com backslash FPA. Download the app, take a short quiz, and get your CPE certificate. If you would like to earn continuing education credit for your FP&A certification from the Association of Finance Professionals for listening to the show, go to the show notes for details on how to earn the credit. Finally, if you enjoy listening to FP&A today, please go to your podcast platform of choice, click the subscribe button, and leave a rating and review of the show. And now, on to the show. From Data Rails, this is FPNA Today. Hello, everyone. Welcome to FPNA Today. I am your host, Paul Barnhurst, aka the FPNA Guy, and you are listening to FPNA Today. FPNA Today is brought to you by Data Rails, financial planning and analysis platform for Excel users. Every week, we welcome a leader from the world of financial planning and analysis and discuss some of the biggest stories and challenges in the world of FP&A. We'll provide you with actionable advice about financial planning and analysis. This is going to be your go-to resource for everything FP&A. I'm thrilled to welcome today's guest on the show, Jenny Fuss. Jenny, welcome to the show. Hi, good morning, Paul. Thanks for having me. You know, really excited to have you here. I'm thrilled to have you on the show. Let me just say a few things about Jenny, and then I'll give her an opportunity to tell us a little bit more about herself. So she comes to us from my hometown of Salt Lake City. So I like that. That's where she's working these days. She earned a degree in economics and management. She is currently the CFO of uh, Bort Longyear, and she's also a member and mentor for the CFO Leadership Council. So Jenny, could you start by just giving us a little bit more about yourself and your background? Yeah, absolutely. And I'm so thrilled that when I figured out that you're actually in Salt Lake City and I just moving to Salt Lake City that we connected. Um, so, but yeah, a little bit more about myself. So Jenny Fass, and you probably pick it already up from my accent. I am German and I grew up there and started also there my career. And uh, without knowing where I'm getting myself into, I started adventuring. So I had a journey that brought me all to Asia and now to the United States and also within the United States a little bit around. And I'm very happy now with my, I call it the very, the most intentional moment in my life where I decided like what I want to do next and where I want to do, do it next. And the rest about me is uh, I'm married. I have two dogs and I'm a cyclist and I really enjoy listening to a lot of podcasts whenever I have time and that includes my commute time, which is my most protective me time. Good. I, I I like that. And two dogs is always fun and appreciate that background. So I know you mentioned you've been in Asia, Germany, and the U.S. So obviously you've had a global career. You know, Can you talk a little bit of what that experience has been like working all over the world? Yeah, I think I would always start that ha- that also comes from a lot of personality. I think I am a more person who is definitely more adventurous. So, you know, you need to envision Jenny grew up in a small town somewhere in Germany, and I really mean somewhere. <laughs> and uh, so 900 people, and uh, I left that little town with 900 people when I was 19 and moved to, in German terms, a big city. And I like that experience. And that's not always easy because you need to find new people, new people you can trust and find your own new rhythm. But I enjoyed that. And I started with a large um, global company, Siemens. And with that, I think that was great for me without knowing at that point in time that that will open up a lot of career opportunities. But I think one thing is once you say out loud what you're interested in, People around you will pick up. And I said, like, yeah, I think I would like to have the experience working and living abroad. And so it happened that one of my mentors um, asked me one day if I would be open to move to China. And I said yes. And I said yes for two reasons. It was one was a personal development perspective I saw in that. And the other one, obviously, the professional one, because that came for me also was um, a big step up. Uh, they asked me actually to become a CFO of a joint venture in China. And I'm like, can it get even more complex? No, but that sounds interesting. I like to stretch myself and 
challenge myself. And I think because of that, I was very open what may come after China. And it happened that actually I was interviewing for a job where I thought it brings me back to Germany. And I was totally cool on that because it also worked for my partner. But in the last interview, uh, the person who interviewed me, who actually is still until today, a mentor of mine, said like, Jenny, I'm putting you to Texas. And I'm like, okay, then sent me to Texas. And that's how I came seven years ago to the United States. And it has been, all of my experience have been really a great experience. And I think it goes back to something uh, someone in my first 10 years said about me without knowing that I was in in reach. And the person said like, well, with Jenny, you can put her in any water. She was that swimming. And, you know, looking now back of 23 years of my career, that is a very true statement. You can throw me in any water, stormy, cold, hot, I will start swimming. That's great. That's that, that's a great story. And I, I can appreciate that, having that ability to adapt. That's a skill that you know employers want. So it sounds like it served you well in your career and you've been to a lot of different places. I mean, sometimes I think of Texas as its own country when you came to the US. So it is. And and maybe just to add on that, envision you come from China, which is a very different culture, and that itself is a wonderful experience. And then when you're once in Asia, you get it's kind of like you open one door and then suddenly you see like, oh, there's 10 more doors open up and how different Asia works. And then coming to Houston, Texas, and trust me, I am a German, right? And the first time I go to the grocery shop and somebody calls me like honey, I think my first reaction was a bit of a rude one. I'm like, I'm not your honey, right? But definitely having uh, Southern hospitality was a great welcoming to the United States. Yeah, no, Southern hospitality is great. I have a lot of family and friends in Texas. I, I, I enjoy Texas, great place. But you know, speaking kind of the international experience, so let's say we have someone listening today who's considering working internationally. You know, they've always wanted to do that. What would your advice be to them? It's really going into such an experience open-minded and without any assumptions. Because if you change and switch cultures and countries, all what you think you know, how human interactions, how conversations about business and in personal life are working, is not what you will find in another country. So having that ability to approach things with a curiosity and open-minded is absolutely key. Because if you go to a country where you expect things to go the way you're used to, you will get to a point where you will be very frustrated eventually and won't like it. And it will make, make it difficult because at the end, it always comes down to connecting with people. And with that, you need to a little bit play around how you connect with people in different cultures and different countries. And that also goes for personal connections. Same also for professional when you think about leading a team and leading a team in Germany and leading a team in China was a very, very different experience to me. And there were things I was clearly not doing right when I started in China because I approached it with my very German way. I figured out if I want that my people you know, be successful in what they do every day, I need to find a different approach. And then maybe more on the personal note, uh, because I also have seen it. Sometimes I would always recommend, you probably don't know that's for you, working and living in a different country, until you do it. And when you do it, you need to be also very honest to yourself. So for some people, that's not a thing, because you will miss family, you will miss your friends. And then it is totally okay, and I have seen that a couple of times around me, to say, this doesn't work for me. And then work it out with your employer to come back, you know, to your home country. And don't be afraid of those conversations if it's happened. People around you will recognize and will cheer you up for trying. And it's not a failure, it's an experience. And it comes with the price take, right? I mean, I moved a lot around, which is maybe a bit of an extreme, that just being, just being far away from home there were moments when there are family events, and let's talk about the positive family events, right? Somebody celebrating 
a big birthday, somebody is getting married and a child is born, all of those will be not always for you possible to just jump on a plane and fly over and be and share the moment. And that can be sometimes really tough. I can imagine that part would be really tough. And I like you know, something you said there, one of just learning different cultures, you know, figuring the different ways to work people. You know, I haven't worked internationally, but in my FP&A career, one of the first markets I supported was Asia Pacific. Okay, they operate very differently. You can't just try to, as you said, you know, push all your German ways or in my case, American ways or of doing things. Sometimes you have to be willing to give and slowly make changes and help them realize why. And so it was a really good learning lesson for me. I wasn't international, but just working with, you know, the international culture was great because it taught me some very different perspectives. Yeah. And I think you're making a really great point there. You don't need to live in a different country to get the international experience. I think we all live in a world where you can get that every day, especially when you work in an international company and don't necessarily have to move to another country. Uh, but also in those moments, I can tell that, that people, even there would make that recommendation, approach it open-minded, ask questions. Um, don't take your assumptions as the base and check in with yourself like, why are my colleagues doing that in, in, for your perspective, maybe in a weird way? Just ask them and you will discover usually a lot of elements which actually I found also very helpful for me to stay always you know, open-minded, learning something new and making work also fun because when you ask questions with people, you get to know them better and then naturally uh, working with those people is usually getting way more fun because you just have maybe next time you'd hop on a call like, hey, I continued about thinking about that topic and here's my thought. What do you think about that? And Totally agree. Getting to know him personally, getting to do things. I love, you know, that I've had the opportunity to talk to people all over the world, especially since I started my business. I mean, I've talked to companies in Croatia, Hungary, you know, Israel, Singapore, all over the U.S., different countries in Europe probably talked to 40 different countries, people. And it's just, it's really fun to see the different perspectives and learn what they're doing. So I totally agree with you. You you don't need to work international, have the experience. Obviously it will be different if you go international for sure, but you can work and experience a lot of different cultures today because of technology that you couldn't have 20, 30 years ago. Oh yeah. So I still remember moving to China and I had not one word of Mandarin I was able to speak nor understand. And then in your personal life, how difficult it is when you try to get, you know, our water dispenser wasn't working. And then you would try to communicate with that management, like, can you send somebody who checks for our water dispenser? And the person on the phone goes like, yes, yes, I know. Nestle you want. And I'm like, no, I, I, I want Nestle, but... The thing is broken, right? So just the inability to communicate and going through that motion and not getting frustrated and just going in that moment with the flow. And then at some point saying like, just, yes, yes, send somebody. And then we will figure it out because when I can show, maybe they will understand I don't need a new bottle of Nestle water. I just need a new dispenser. Yeah. Yeah, that'd be hard. I could see where that could be a real challenge. Now, switching gears a little bit here from the international experience. You know, you've been the CFO there at Bort Longyear for a few years. You've done joint venture and some other kind of CFO and high senior leadership roles. Has it always been your goal to become a CFO or kind of how did that come about? No, it has not been kind of like my goal in terms of like, that's the title I'm chasing. It was always like, I want to have a position, a role where I can have impact and influence. And that always stands out. But obviously, during my career, you get this question a lot. Where do you see yourself in five years? And some organizations, they, they want you to answer that in a very particular way. And so sometimes you get taught, like, you better answer, like, oh, yes, I want to become the CFO, right? And then they will be happy about that. I did not go that way. And I think there was even I had a few awkward situations because of that, because I was more describing like, give me a role 
where I will be challenged and I will be able to help people to develop, succeed, and create value. And that is probably for some people just too much of a broad narrative. And they can better envision where they can put you from a development perspective if you just say, like, that's the title I'm after. But obviously, at one moment in time, there was a switch for me as well. And that was just, uh, I call it like recently, like a year ago, when I was thinking about what is my next step? Where do I go to? So in my prior role, I was a vice president overseeing a global shared service center for a large corporation and had an oversight of 1,200 people. And I'm like, okay, what's next for me? And I had a couple of interviews, and I would say I definitely did my exploration phase. And I was like, okay, is it now the next thing in a large corporation to a senior VP, maybe in finance supply chain, because that is a hot topic today. And I'm still today fascinated about, and I think there's a lot where you can do as a finance business partner in supply chain. But then more and more when I talk through, I'm like, no, I want to become a CFO of a standalone company, publicly or private equity, actually, uh, which I finally also, I mean, it turned out to be private equity, which I'm very happy about because I feel like I get challenged on multiple ways and it's what gets me up in the morning. So yeah, I would say a year ago, it was switching to something like very, no, I want to become a CFO. And, and when you become a standalone CFO, you have those questions like, okay, but you don't have already done all the checkboxes, right? And you don't have all experience. And that is a true fact that everyone as a CFO started as a first-time CFO and haven't had done everything before. So anyone who's thinking about whatever path that is to a CFO, to a controller, to a treasurer, to an FP&A person or role, there's there's always the journey towards it, and there's nothing what can stop you from that unless you know you're willing to learn. Go for it. Great advice. I love that. If you're willing to learn and just keep challenging yourself, and I like that you mentioned supply chain finance. Interestingly enough, I went to Arizona State, and they have one of the best supply chain programs in the country. That's originally what I was going to study, and then I ended up switching to finance. But I considered doing the supply chain finance route because they had a combo where you could do supply chain finance as a specialization. But I was doing a dual degree and I'm like, I just can't fit in this many classes. Like, there's no way this is all going to work. So I uh, stuck with just the finance. But I, I started my career in supply chain with the government. So definitely can relate to that kind of area and some of that. I did procurement for a few years before I switched to FP&A. So but funny that you mentioned supply chain finance. So, you know, next question here. I know you've managed a lot of teams. Obviously, you mentioned a shared service center of 1,200 people. So you've managed some big teams, some smaller teams throughout your career. What would you say is the key to building a successful team, to getting a team to perform at the level they're capable of? Yeah, I think it's a very simple starting point. It always starts with a clear vision and a goal. If that is not clear, no matter your size, or maybe one employee, you can get away without having a goal and a vision that... You need to have that. And also there, just to be clear, it's not about that everyone just says yes to the goal and the vision. But having the conversation and the clarity about the direction is absolutely key. The second point, and I would even that say like, I haven't yet figured that out in perfection, but it's very important, is the effective communication. And I would say that is a... That's nothing what you do once and then you have figured out. I think it is a journey because also like how we communicate is changing, right? I mean, we just had 2020 where suddenly for a lot of people, communication changed within a day and we all need to learn like, okay, how do we now stay in touch with people we don't see every day, maybe, you know, coming to the office? And how do you make sure that everyone at the same, you know, basically same time gets the information they need when you think about around the globe, but also now you're not naturally walking into a a meeting room and by that you're already giving maybe an update on a specific project and it it reaches 20 people. When you have remote work and what we now also have, you know, blended time, you need to find different ways on how you get updates out. It's the personal, but you also have to go maybe through email through uh, Teams, Zoom chats, whatever it is, what you define, 
and also how you measure, measure it is super important. And, and then I think another very, I think that's really important in greeting is the diversity of the skill sets you have in your team, because that will set your team apart. And when we think about FP&A, I mean, ideally, you have a person who is your data guru, ideally, right? Does mean that every FP&A analyst needs to be really good with data and setting up dashboards? No. But if you have a good blend of different skill sets in your team, you can rock a lot for the company. 100% agree. So I like that. If I was to summarize, I think there were three points there. One, you got to have a vision. Where are you going? What's that shared goal, that purpose? Two is communicate and figure out the right way to communicate. And it's going to be different for each organization. And three is that diversity of talent. You got to have the different skill sets. And that, that, that all makes a lot of sense to me. I've definitely seen some of that in my career. So I really appreciate that. I think that's great advice. You know, and so speaking of kind of building teams, now, what do you look for from your FP&A teams? You mentioned data, wanting having a data person, but when you're looking for an FP&A team, you know, building one out or looking to, you know, get one to be high performing, what are those things you look for? Yeah, I always talk, and my, I'm now new to my company, right? They they have now Jenny for three and a half months, and they already know that what's my favorite topic. And that my favorite topic is talking about finance business partnering, because that's where I want to see my FP&A team uh, developing to. I call it above and beyond providing good data, which is number one is important, and having performed good analyticals to then provide recommendations and to actually start a conversation. And for me, that is always meet your business partner, and that can be a person in operations and sales and manufacturing, um, in engineering, um, where they are, because we speak a different language than they do speak. And when you are able to tell a story about the number, that's, I think, for me, when you have the best start to create that business partnering, because it's not about, FP&A is not about being the Sometimes we on the finance side have to be a little bit the police that comes with like, you know, when you think about accounting and internal control. However, then it's about more establishing that people will come also and say, we have maybe this new customer and we need to find a different way of how we contract or we are actually entering into a new country, right? And you want to be part of that to prevent later on, I call it leakage, right? Because you may run into establishing suddenly something in a country where you now pay twice tax. If you would have done and asked maybe finance and tax and accounting, they could have your advice of doing it differently and preventing any, most of the time, tax leakages. Because, yes, we need to pay tax, but there are different ways of maybe setting up certain businesses and countries so you are not being double dipped on certain tax payments, right? And that's where I think you can measure also if the partnership works, if people come to the FP&A team and say, I have an issue, a problem. I have a new business here. Can we sit down and figure out what are the, all the questions we need to ask ourselves to be successful, either in resolving the problem or issue or setting up a new business? Thank you. I appreciated that answer there. You know, one thing I really like was you mentioned, you know, don't just do the analysis, be that business partner and provide recommendations. I just actually finished a digital course this last week and I said, driving value through smart analysis. And we spent some time talking about the importance of the recommendation and aligning and influencing. So often in finance, we spend all our time on the analysis and that we forget you can do brilliant analysis but if you don't present and come up with the recommendations, usually it doesn't go anywhere. And I've had that more than a few times because it took me a long time to realize, oh, there's a storytelling, there's an influencing. Just because I did a good analysis doesn't mean it's going to get used. And that's so true. Yes. And when I think about that, what I also helping my team on develop that as a skill set, that storytelling. And most important is that influencing and maybe we didn't talk about that, but I will add it on here because I feel like FP&A and finance is a great place for women 
Because if you're in the business, everyone is eager to hear about the numbers. By that, you get already a voice. And at the end, the voice has no gender. That's just because of that role, a lot of people are really eager to listen to you and want to hear what you have to say. So if you build that skill, be it the storytelling, but also understanding where the other side is coming from, what do they need, then I think it's, I mean, for me, if somebody would ask me, I don't know, if I would think about my younger me, and I would now, I would say, no, Jenny, go into the finance space. You will enjoy that. There is, there's a lot where you will be learning, a lot of challenges, and you will be able to connect with people. And that's what I enjoy, telling the stories, connecting with people, and then having together, you know, successes created and celebrated. I like that. Thank you for sharing that. Great points there. So, you know, speaking of FP&A, I've talked a little bit about business partnering, but one thing I've noticed and I've had other people on the show comment is historically, it seems like there's been a lot of focus on the budgeting, the planning, and the reporting. As I like to say, as someone put it, a fat F and a P and a skinny A is the way they put it. Why do you think that is? Why do you think there's kind of been a challenge to really Make sure that analysis is getting to the business and it's being done at the level it needs to. I think that I, I think that is actually the big question in the room, right? Why is that a skinny A? I think it probably needs the perspective of both sides, right? Because I ask business leaders also, like, what do you need from FP&A? And sometimes they're just happy with having the report they have gotten for the last 15 years. And nobody is looking for, like, what is the things I'm not seeing or what are the ask questions I'm not asking? Uh, because they, we all have that, right? We are human beings, right? If certain things are routine and working as as they're working perfectly, why change it, right? So I think there is also that our, I call it internal partners or customers, don't have a higher challenging ask to FP&A. And then on the FP&A side, I think it is a unique skill set if you really get to the analytical part because it also requires that you know how to handle, you know, whatever it is, Power BI and whatever data visualization tool it is, handle that, but more also develop that mindset to think in terms of data. And you can see that a lot of times people are struggling with that because they are not challenged on that. Like, can you approach that differently? Or Sometimes I would wish everyone in the business world would get one lesson. Everything what you do in terms of transaction is a data point. And that data point has a value. So what are we doing from the very first moment a data point enters a company that we make sure that we are creating value, right? And the da- first data point is maybe just the order entry. And how can we make sure that that value is not decreasing? and keeps increasing. It has a lot to do like also with data management, accuracy, knowing and understanding where the data flow is coming from and going to. And that would be, for me, the perfect world would be that everyone has the appreciation of the value each and every data point has. We are not there yet, right? Because there's a lot of like, somebody screwed it up in the order entry. We know at the very end, there would be most of the time it's a collection team. And they will fix it, right? And having that as at a higher level seen and appreciated will help. But now coming back, the two perspectives. So not being also challenged and affinating by themselves, right? Who we want to be and how we want to have impact and influence. And I think there is a very practical reason. There's every month a month and closing. There's every month of reporting. There is every quarter probably a new forecast. There's once a year a, a budgeting process, right? And all of that, even though I think it gets better with new technology, is very demanding, but it doesn't take the time to really explore new ways of working. And until we get holistically to that and allow us, our FP&A community, to have that playground, we may get stuck into it. You know what it is like. 13 different spreadsheets emailed out to 23 different budget holders multiple iterations, version control, errors, back and forth updates. You never really feel in control of the consolidation and collection process. Yep, I've been there. 
Stop. Breathe. DataRails is the financial planning and analysis platform for Excel users. DataRails takes data from all your company's disparate sources. No organization is too complex, consolidating everything into one place, secured in the cloud. Now all your data finally talking to each other. Everything is automated back into your report in Excel. Cash flow, FX conversion, intercompany transactions, now automated and up to date. Drill down and variance analysis in seconds. Don't replace Excel, embrace Excel. Turn your Excel into a lean, mean FPNA machine. Find out more at www.datarails.com. Great point there. I think, you know, I have a friend one time that kind of referred, I, he referenced FPNA and said it's a little bit like investment banking, but in the corporate world, in the sense of a lot of long hours, there can be burnout. He's like, and you don't see a lot of people at their end of their career in FPNA. Like most people go up beyond to something else. And I thought it was a really interesting perspective. And I think some of those things you mentioned, right? You see studies that say, FPNA professionals sometimes spend more than 50% of their time on non-value act activities and it's mostly cleansing data. And you know, how do you continue to reduce that? How do you reduce the demand on the budget and the forecast? I think technology plays a big role. I think upskilling plays a big role, but also there's some mindset changes and finding ways to help people realize the real value comes in the partnering and those value-added recommendations and being with the business. But it's hard, especially when you're in the middle of month end going, right, well, I just got to get this out, especially if you're a public company and you know someone's breathing down your back because it has to be done in five minutes. How do you how do you balance that as an organization? Any thoughts there? Yeah, it is a challenging path and it has a lot of dependencies, right? I can just what my situation is here, we have an outdated ERP system. And with that, that comes a lot of pain. And I would just wish I could, you know, just and we all know ERP implementation, even so today it's the cloud implementation. They're not a three, four year project anymore. But still, it's like you need resources for that. You need to have the financing in place for that and all of that. So obviously a lot and a big enabler, I would say, is technology. And I think if I look back when I started where we are today, the technology is there, so we can get there. But then also people need to get trained on the different skill set they need. Plus, also, I think the mindset, right? Um, it's, uh, I mean, we are publicly traded, even though it's only 1% is traded, so we are more heavy on the private equity part. But it doesn't change a lot, right? I still need to do monthly reporting and, and the quarterly reporting because that is really for the public. And um, sometimes I have people who I need to help them to prioritize and balance them. Like, this is a normal month end course, and we do what we need to do, and that would be fine. But what I also want you is thinking and working on the future. And I think that's a big mindset shift to ask people, like, why does this matter in three months, in one year, and in five years? And some people who are maybe listening to that podcast and will say, she's not saying that, but I will say that. Will our forecast we are now putting together for this year in three years matter? No. So I think there was also to a conversation with business. We have a forecast for very good reasons, but to which degree we need to be over accurate and trying to be perfect. Rather than saying like, okay, in the in the bigger scheme, where do we need to get to? And and rather, because some people still, when I say like, oh, I would like to have a three-year forecast, people are like, what? Are you crazy? And I'm like, I would rather have a three-year forecast than a forecast who gives me a, a little bit of an update of, over the next nine months, right? When I think about this year, and I think it has a lot to do with what needs to happen with people in the business with CFOs, people in FP&A to have that conversation and challenging, why do we really need to have that or is that something else what we need even more? And and again, a three-year forecast is not on each and every account. I need to have an accurate number, right? No. 
Yeah, no, I I seen a company that wanted us to do it on every cost center and account three years out. And I was just like, okay, not not my approach, but I did what I was told. So I think, I think the big changes there is uh, from FP&A, like going like each cost center, each account to knowing what are the key value driver, what are your key cost driver, understanding that. And I don't think that we are there yet. I know some companies are more advanced and have established that already more, but but I think we are still on that journey. And once we find that out, I think FP&A will have much more impact and influence and in helping businesses to better do cash allocations, right? Do I put my money into the inventory because I will sell it like crazy with big margin? Or do I put it into technology and capital expenditures because I will need that to produce my products, which will be sold with high margin. And uh, I don't think that that is already broadly uh, established because sometimes when you walk into FP&A, they are doing the traditional, I'm taking the past and then I'm trying to predict the future type of work. I agree. I think there's a lot of opportunity and I think we're we're seeing more value driver based approaches and understanding the business, but there's still a lot of companies that look at it traditional. I think a lot's changing with the need for agility, fast, the way we budget, the way we think about things. And a lot of that hinges on better business partnering, better technology skills, and just thinking differently, a different mindset that's really centered on the business and how we, you know, help drive things forward. So I think there's a lot you said there that gives a lot of, you know, good advice. You know, next question here is kind of changing gears a little bit, but you know, I know you've joined a few different organizations over the year, just recently did it, as you mentioned, you know, I think three and a half, four months into being CFO. What a, what advice would you offer to somebody, you know, or how do you think about kind of first integrating into an organization? How do you go about that? Yeah, I think it's, um, you need to understand a little bit homework before you start, like trying to figure out what the culture around and then just coming in the first days and ask questions and spend time actually with people. I have say I did not do that always, especially not in my earlier career because I was um, very result orientated. You know, I came in like, okay, my boss told me he wants to see this and that done. And I immediately prioritized that basically the task over building the relationships, right? And the relationships can be with your own team, with your boss, with your peers, with other operational leaders, which are important to actually maybe when you when I think about the FPNA space to do your job. And yeah, really approaching it more on getting to know the people and ask questions and also ask for feedback because that will help you to adopt, right? And I'm not saying like that you always, today I'm not saying that, today I'm saying that was full confident. I wouldn't have said that, that probably 20 years ago. It's not necessarily about that you need to fit in 100%, but you need to adopt yourself so it becomes a good, successful collaboration. And so you can do your job, the people around can do their job, and together there will be And at the end, we're doing all of that to be successful, right? So you don't want to come in and miss out on establishing the right relationships because through the relationships, you will be able to better understand where people are coming from, why are they maybe after certain KPIs or why they maybe have, you know, a bit of a blood pressure when you challenge them on certain topics. Lean in and ask the question, tell me more about that. Why is that important to you? And that will help you to better understand the business, but also establish those important relationships with every stakeholder around you. And that is sometimes what people may say that's table stakes, right? But stakeholder management is the number one what you have to do in your first 90 days. You need to understand your stakeholders and to establish your own path on how you maneuver with all those stakeholders. That makes sense. I And I like that is stakeholder management and how you're going to maneuver with them. I appreciate that you said you don't have to change yourself, but there may be some adapting that you need to do to adjust to the culture. 
I mean, you still got to be true to who you are, but learning to adjust and work with different type of people in different ways is also important. And it's a, you know, it's a balance, but I, I like how you said that. I think that was really good advice there. So you know, we're wrapping up here kind of toward the end of the interview. We're getting into the uh, questions we ask everybody. And this is one we like to ask everyone. You know, we're big believers here that uh, failure is just a learning experience. So can you describe a time you've experienced a failure at work? And what did you learn from the experience? Yeah, I would first of all say like um, failure is important to grow and develop as a person and to be also successful. And I would even say it's sometimes you need to be also, and it's sometimes difficult to say, but you need to be proud of a mistake you've made. But only, that comes my very German but, right? But only. Um, when you also go back and, and look at that, like, what can I learn from that? And that is always the, for me, the important point. What can I learn from that? And I would say, like, it goes really back to my early days when I was in a business controlling department. And we were establishing and cracking our hands around building a forecast model in an Excel spreadsheet. And we were building that from scratch. And um, I don't know, long hours, uh, long late hours. And so it happened. I was in charge and I made a very significant mistake. And I felt like I'm going to get fired about this. Obviously, I got the feedback that I was not getting fired. I got, and I think it had a lot to do how I handled it. So I went to, um, to that um, division CFO, and I asked this, you know, there were times, you know, where you make an appointment to see the boss boss. So I had that. I made clear it's important. I need to talk to him. And I went in and I, and I didn't, I, I, obviously, I notified my bosses, but I also went, you know, straight to the divisional CFO and I said, I made a mistake. And here is how it happened. This is the impact. And here's what I'm going to do that it's A, not happening again. But I also know that it would be difficult for you to explain now a million dollar mistake. And and I was 24 at that point in time. I said, that's why I need a little help on how to tell that story. And I think that got me a lot of credibility that I was not just like, hmm, it happened, right? I mean, my excuse could have been like, well, I worked more than 10 hours that day and I was just tired and it just happened. No, that was not my approach. I mean, it had impact to that, but sure. I think it was having that conversation and explaining why it happened, but more the focus on, and now what? What are we going to do forward here? I, I love the now what, because I think there's a framework in analysis, you know, the what, so what, now what. And it applies in so many areas, even in failures, really good, right? Yeah, here's what happened. Okay, so what? So now we have a million dollar miss, but that now what? What are we going to do? How do we fix it? That's kind of that recommendation stage. And I think that's a great way to look at it, look at it as a learning experience and going, okay, messed up. I have to own it. Doesn't matter why it happened. Here's what happened. What do we do now? What's that next step? Because yeah, it's really easy to come up with excuse. I've done it of why we messed something up, but it really doesn't matter at the end of the day. It's happened. So thank you for that. Next one here. This is a personal question we like to ask people. What is something unique about you that you can share with our audience? Something we wouldn't find online that makes you unique. Oh, not online. Oh. If it's online, you can share it. But generally, we we it's not something something people wouldn't generally know. Yeah. So I don't know if it's super unique, but I'm a scuba diver, and uh, not only a scuba diver. I really um, also there like there's a little bit of a parallel to my career. I took it, you know, one step to the next step to the next level, and and. I really just enjoy that because the meanwhile, I'm a Trimix um, technical diver. And that means I can go really deep. So now people ask me like, but why? Well, it's not because you see more fish down there. And actually it gets pretty dark down there. And third is also like that, that is a sport which has a higher risk level. But to me, it's more like being really focused on what I'm doing and challenging myself. And I really enjoy that because... People around me who know me, I always high energize. And it's always a little bit challenging for me in the day-to-day to calm down and, and, and slow my pace. 
But when I do a deep dive, that is a necessity. I need to slow myself down. And I found deep in the water, I'm mastering it. And it helps me also above the waterline. I'm not yet mastering it, but it helps me a lot. That makes a lot of sense. I could definitely see that would help and that discipline, because there's a lot of discipline that goes into that and training. And it's not an easy thing, especially the deeper you go. I would imagine the harder it can become, the more challenging it is. Yeah. It has a lot to do also with uh, continuous learning, right? You, you, because you go with different gases the water and you're handling way more equipment and I have to say as part of that uh, I had to do also rescue diver certification and that was the most challenging and I was so exhausted it went on for a week and I was actually saying why on earth am I doing that (laughs) but it was also so rewarding Um, and, and sometimes it's important maybe You know, when you ask people what's unique, that people will start thinking about what they do maybe in their personal life and how much positive impact and why further that can have to a professional life. And I think that that, that's for me where I'm almost like, yeah, that that uniqueness that I go deep to 210 feet, people usually probably would not see that when they first time meet me in the professional world. Sure. Yeah, I wouldn't have thought that the first time I met you. So that that's cool. That's fun. So this is another one of our favorite questions we ask everybody. So big fans of Excel here, DataRels is an FP&A platform integrated with Excel, who's our sponsors. And so what's your favorite Excel feature or formula? Favorite thing about Excel? Yeah, I mean, I would say the the favorite is itself Excel, um, to be honest. I still remember in my early days, my my one of my divisional CEO said like, oh, I want to have one day where we don't need Excel spreadsheets anymore. And here we are 20 plus years later and still working with it. But there has been a lot of evolution, right? They have features. I think when they, uh, I mean, for some people, I mean, most FPNI people know Pivot, right? Great, right? I can categorize data and I can make meaning out of that. But when they also added the slicer function, right? It was like, oh my God, now I get faster. And, and then it depends a little bit on the situation. I just had recently where I'm like, okay, I haven't used the goal seek function for a while, but I needed it and I enjoyed how easy it is to support when you think through different scenarios to just play with that and not doing, you know, now. I don't know, you copy a certain line with a formula and then 10 times, right? I mean, it works that way as well. But what I then also like is like all those little features Excel has, which are just efficiency. And that makes me always, you know, I I love to Google stuff. I sometimes need to do that. I'm not every day in the deepest weeds of Excel. But I know I can go there. A few things you will find very intuitive. And then otherwise, there is where you ask the question and you watch a YouTube video and you figure it out. And for me, that is that's part of that journey. To it's, It makes fun to work, actually, a lot. I love when I figure something new out and it works, right? When you get done with that formula versus you do it and you're, you're just dra- you're, you're racking your brain of why is this not working? This is definitely not the number I was expecting. Yeah, and I mean, there has been different times. I mean, I still know how much joy I had when I discovered how the ReLook app works, right? I mean, famous, but the first time, oh my God, that was life-changing. Yeah, I have heard so many people say that. That's often a favorite we get is VLOOKUP because it's almost a gateway to become, it's kind of like a gateway formula to becoming more advanced in Excel. All of a sudden, it just opens up a whole new world versus doing manual lookups and... yeah. I mean, today, nobody can impress me with VLOOKUP anymore, but I still remember the day when I discovered it. I'm like, oh, my God, this is like open a complete new a door to a complete new world. Yeah, yeah I, no, I, I hear you. I agree with you. So last question here. What advice would you offer to someone starting their career in FP&A today? I would say find out if FP&A is for you. And that has a lot to do with, I would describe FP&A people 
uh, curious by nature, and they enjoy that. They enjoy asking questions, you know, turning one number around and then go to the next number, turning that around. And uh, along with that, the advice I would give is spend time with your business. Whatever that is, I grew up in the manufacturing world. And I remember I was sitting, you know, in front of my monitor looking at Excel spreadsheets and I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing here. I don't know why this doesn't make sense. I mean, and I literally went to the shop floor manager, um, Thomas, and I said, like, I want to understand this better. Can I get, you know, in Germany, they have the blue suit when they work in the shop floor and maybe just spend a few hours when they start the shift at 6 a.m. and maybe work until 9 with them and just follow them and, and then go back to the office behind my Excel spreadsheets. And obviously, he got never approached before by any finance person uh, doing that. So I did that. And I had a couple of, uh, one month I did that, like going in and really having, you know, first three hours of the day, just being, you know, on on drilling machine and running with the maintenance guy and always the planner sitting next to him. And, and then basically, I would say, Based on that, returning to my Excel spreadsheets, the numbers were suddenly making sense. And what was the real fun, I could I could go now down and say, yeah, the scrap number is up and I know exactly where it's happening. And I know that I can go, let's call him, you know, Ralph and talk with Ralph what we are going to do about that. By that, A, it is the people connection part, but it's also seeing yourself how you become part of creating value. Because reducing scrap, well, most of those people have an incentive in reducing scrap. So you make them happy and you make the P&L of a company better. And I don't think there's anything else what can be better as an experience when you work in the FP&A space when you have that experience. Yeah, I agree. When you make both the company and the people happy, you become a business partner. They start loving you, right? They look at it. They don't look at you as the finance person. They look at you as someone that's helping them be successful. So great, great advice there. So if someone wants to get a hold of you to learn more about you, maybe connect with you, what's the best way to do that? So absolute best way is over LinkedIn. Jenny Fass, Frank Unicorn Sam Sam is my last name. It, it's, it's German, it means foot. So it's not a lot fast. Just to say that easy to find there, connect uh, and always open to make new connections. And I love also getting to know people and what we also did, Paul, right? Basically a digital coffee. And other than that, I am trying, you know, with the new job, it's a little bit hard on me right now, but be also active in my networks. But also there you can find me. Great. Well, thank you so much for being on the show today, Jenny. Really enjoyed chatting with you and learning a little bit about your experience. You know, good luck as you continue to uh, figure out how to grow and advance as you're there at Bort Longyear and in your career and really appreciate the time. So thank you. Thank you, Paul. And big shout out for what you are doing and offering to the community. I love your podcast and I also love what you're offering and helping us as people who like FPNA to amplify the A. 